Jessica, and this is Debak K Rambles, where a couple of friends review Korean dramas. And I'm back for another really emotional episode. I'm sure this is going to be really emotional for both of us. I am joined by Paroma from Dramas Over Flowers podcast. How are you? I'm good. Hello, everyone. It's, um, <laughs> it's an honor to be invited. Hi, Jess. Yes. I'm so happy for you to be here. We're gonna I I do want to apologize like up front because we're gonna be reviewing Youth of May and I, I just wanna apologize. <laughs> like I'm so sorry <laughs> that um I made you watch this show in its entirety. And I'm just sorry I'm sorry. I'm so sorry. Um <laughs> No, it was on my bucket list, kind of. I, I you just gave me the actual reason. You needed gave me the push I needed to finally get mm. watching. Got you. So uh, for those who haven't listened to Dramas Over Flowers for some odd reason, um, <laughs> I'm just going to ask you, how did you get into K-dramas? Like, what's your origin story? Uh, my origin story was that I was tricked by, by my co-host. <laughs> <laughs> she told me, uh, so we both bonded over fantasy books. So stuff with dragons and like wizards and stuff. At one point, we were both hooked on that Colin Morgan wizardy show, Merlin. <laughs> Oh, um, right. We were big fangirls. Uh, she got me like uh, signed photographs and stuff from like conferences. That's how that's that was our friendship. And um, then at one point, some like 10, more than 10 years ago now, she was like, uh, you know, I think you're going to like this, you know, drama. It's, it's a Korean drama. Uh, watch it. And in my head, anything Korean was very much film centered. I had no idea what Korean dramas were. I, I just thought like, I don't know like Asian movies, like really complicated movies that come out during award seasons or something. Like just, you only hear about them at like these artsy uh, film <laughs> viewing <laughs> places. Right. Um, I had a very annoying cousin who was really into um, East Asian movies and she was the artsiest person I knew. So I just had a bad association. I like the cousin, like your faves. <laughs> <friend. laughs> <Still. laughs> Uh, yeah, okay, so she uh, was trying to get me to watch Coffee Prince, but what um, I ended up watching first was You're Beautiful. And it was nothing like what I was expecting. <laughs> <laughs> it was mad different. And uh, I, I, was, I was hooked. I think I stumbled a little on the first episode because I, just, I couldn't... I, I was so used to Western uh, depiction of women that... Mm. Um, Gominam or other Gominu being played by Pak. Whoa, whoa, my God. Pak Shinhe. Yeah, Pak Shinhe. Yeah. I can't believe I forgot his name for a second. Played by Pak Shinhe was really different. Like she was so gentle and she was kind of like a bunny rabbit. And I was like, wait, do I really want to watch something that shows a full grown woman like this? And then mm. I actually started watching the rest of the drama and I, it bro broke a lot of my preconceptions, preconceived notions. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, like really broke them, like just smashed <laughs> them to smithereens. And I was grateful because it finally opened um, up a space for me to watch stories that were, I, because I was desperately waiting for, um, I don't know, Indian movies to just make content that appealed to me more. Um, mm. Western television, Western movies to make content that work for more, but I couldn't find them. I did find stuff that I liked in books, 
but you finish books really fast <laughs> and your favorite <laughs> authors don't write you know new installations often enough so you're starved but k drama land was not only giving me a new type of storytelling they were so prolific they were coming out with like 18 dramas every quarter at that point now it's like 18 dramas every week but <laughs> it was just it was like a smorgasbord and i was just kind of handed a fork so thank you saya <laughs> uh, she totally made me expect <laughs> that i was i don't know i was expecting something more fantasy related or i i i don't know why she told me how she knew that this would work for me but i think eventually uh, in our more recent conversations we kind of figured out that we have found in our experience that the most die hard korean drama fans also tend to be people who really love literature and that could be mm. genre specific literature it could be just smutty literature it could be <laughs> romance it could be thriller it could be space opera anything but they really like storytelling and um wow that's that's, that's my story that's okay wow i love your story thank you for sharing <laughs> and the whole thing about <laughs> the people that love k dramas tend to like literature you're talking to a reformed english major and i uh for most of my career i was in publishing so There's that. Um funny you should mention your beautiful and coffee prints because we're covering both this season of the podcast because we keep going back in time to do pre 2015 K dramas because I don't know if you've heard, seen that's, this sentiment that's where online. The best ones. Yeah. Those yeah, those are really good ones. But the sentiment I've seen online is that people don't want to watch older K dramas. I can't watch anything that's pre 2015 like really? it's just pain. And I'm like, okay. <laughs> so Who are these people? <laughs> I well, I don't want to name any names, but even though I don't have any names, but uh I'm here to say just to advocate for these older K dramas and I'd love to revisit some of these ones like Your Beautiful and Coffee Prince. So, keep an eye on the feed because we're going to go back in time again. Uh the first few K dramas that we did this season were pre 2015 but not as far back as Coffee Prince. So, we're going to keep going. But this this one that we're going to review today, Youth of May is not pre 2015. It is closer in time to the present day release. Um even though it is kind of retro because of, you know, when it takes place and stuff. So, Thank you, Paroma. I am so excited for you to be here and uh we're going to do some housekeeping really fast. If this is your first time listening, thank you so much for pressing play. Go ahead and subscribe on your favorite podcast app. We're on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts and many more. And if you like us, please give us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts. Come and check us out on social media to stay up to date on everything that we're doing, our latest episodes and reviews. You can find us on Twitter, Instagram, Facebook and TikTok at @debakpod. And lastly, if you're a fan, the best way to support the show is to become a patron. It's a great way for you to get involved and show your support. You can check out the page on patreon.com/alwayscriticpod. And thank you to our patrons Janet, Curtis, Bale, Cindy, CD, Grace, Alana, Lorna and Ib. You guys are wonderful. Thank you so much for being here. And without further ado, we're going to get into the non-spoiler section of Youth of May. So, I'll read the Asian Wiki synopsis, and it goes like this. In May 1980, during the turbulent times of the Gwangju uprising, Hite and Myungi fall in love. Their love seems destined by fate. Hite is a medical student who entered medical school at the top of his class. He seems like an easygoing person, but he also has an unyielding spirit and obstinacy. 
Myungi has worked as a nurse for the past three years. She is a lovely person who stands up against what is not fair. So this show aired originally from May to June 2021. Of course, it aired in May. (laughs) It is 12 episodes long, not that long at all. And it is directed by Song Min Yop. He's directed Dr. Prisoner from 2019. Um, My drama list also lists Lee Dae-kyung as a director. I have no idea if that's accurate, but I figured I'd just mention it here. Uh, Youth of May was written by Lee Kang, and they they also wrote Spy from 2015. So I do want to point out that these these people, like the directors, potential directors, multiple, and the writers are kind of largely untested. They don't have a lot to their filmographies. And Lee Kang, like the spy thing from 2015, obviously it's about a spy from North Korea. So I think this is kind of in their wheelhouse, if you think about it that way. But yeah, not a lot to go off of in terms of what they did before Youth of May. But let's talk about, yeah, let's talk about this cast, though. So we have Lee Do-hyun, he plays Hite, and he's had a wonderful year because he has starred in The Glory from Netflix. So we've seen him consistently from 2022 to 2023 in that show. He's been in Melancholia, Sweet Home, 18 Again, Hotel de Luna, Clean with Passion for Now, and still 17. Um, this is basically my introduction to Lee Do-hyun. I don't really? know if, yeah, I had not seen him in anything else. I had like totally like bypassed all of these K-dramas. Um, what? <laughs> yeah. So, well, I hate to say like I bypassed them, but I saw him in The Glory when part one aired. So at the end of 2022, I saw him. Mm. And then, uh, which I was like, okay, we have to see more with Lee Do-hyun in it because he's amazing in The Glory. And then I started watching this show almost concurrently to the glory part two like very close to when part two aired and that was that's basically all that i had seen him in. i hadn't seen still 17 i hadn't seen him in hotel de luna even though i i dropped hotel de luna and hadn't seen sweet home yet so yeah i like basically never had seen ido hyun until this year <laughs> Uh, a slight correction there. So, uh, still seventeen was the American uh, one. The adaptation was eighteen again. That's and I'm so sorry. Eighteen again, which <laughs> is <laughs> you're like watch, watch that, him. please. Correct. Still seventeen is the one. <sighs> what is his name from High School Musical? No, no, I know. I love him so much, or at least at that point I did. Um, <laughs> it has Chandler in it. He's the grown-up version. Oh Correct. my God, Chandler. what is the younger one's name? Zach? Um, no. Zach Efron. Yes, Zac you got Efron. it. That's right. Yeah. <laughs> he was so yeah. cute. <laughs> so they adapted the Still 17 movie into a K-drama. And so he stars, Ido Hyun stars in that. Back in 2018, he did that. Yeah. Um. So you had seen him in that show. Yeah, I think I first saw him in 3417. And then weirdly, okay. I ended up watching every one uh, of his dramas. Just. I wasn't what? looking for him, but I was just watching everything that he was in. Uh, I was watching Sweet Home. I was watching, um, oh, what was that drama that he did? Uh, Hotel Del Luna, where initially, because I had seen him as this 
supporting roles, best friend, <laughs> um, <laughs> kind of like a really minor character in uh, 30 Words 17. So very easy to sort of pass over. Um, and he was a young boy in that one. And so right after that, I think I saw him in Hotel Del Luna, Hotel, ah, Hotel Del Luna, where <laughs> um, he was the past love of the main protagonist. And he was uh-huh. in his proper warrior garb and stuff with like the headband, right. uh, looking very dapper. Um, but it's, um, I did not recognize him at first. <laughs> He, it, it's like he had a sudden growth spurt or something, but oh. um, it, he didn't. I mean, I think it was just like uh, a year apart, but just the, this, this guy, he has, he chooses his projects well. He, mm. he tends to really focus on the emotional core of his characters. Like he, he wants characters where he can cry and laugh and like properly emote. He does not go for like straightforward, chaboli character. Honestly, his character in uh, The Glory is like the most conventional character he's chosen as yet. <laughs> like he's basically right. your chebol savior of the heroine, which is, you know, but... Um, <laughs> I, Say less. Come on. <laughs> Say less. Okay, okay. So, yeah, I mean, I, I, I loved watching him grow as an actor. I loved seeing him in these projects where I just wasn't expecting him and he would just crop up. And um, then I started looking out for his projects. And I think the first thing that I watched for him um, was Melancholia, which turned out to not exactly be what I was expecting. (laughs) (laughs) But the cast was so good. I actually ended up watching the entire drama. I, I, for anybody who's watched Melancholia, and probably knows why I have reservations. Listen, we can talk. And I will agree with all your points. <laughs> it's just that I really like Edo here. And I really like the actress. Um, he was cast opposite. She was the one from Search WWW. And oh my God, I can't. Um, Im Soo Jung. Uh-huh. Uh, uh-huh. So I, I kind of had to watch it for them. I couldn't, I couldn't escape it. But yeah. All of that to say is that um, I've had Youth of Me. <laughs> on my list for a while and so when Jess was like do you want to record an episode <laughs> on this drama I was like oh okay so maybe it's time I actually broke my heart um yeah and that's putting it lightly is that <laughs> oh yeah it just broke my heart casually <laughs> it's like Ido Hyun says right like when you when you're when you're it's like it's like he said to his lady I'm ready to have my heart broken like I'm, I'm ready to be in pain because <laughs> it's yeah okay well talking about his lady uh his leading lady is Gomen Si and she plays Myung Yi uh I had seen her in a lot actually so she was in My Sassy Girl from 2017 she's been in Welcome to Waikiki from 2018 The Smile Has Left Your Eyes both Love Alarm seasons Sweet Home and most recently in Chidi-san in 2021, I really enjoyed seeing her in The Witch Part 1, The Subversion, which is a movie from 2018. So, yeah. Had you seen Gomen-si? That's the only one I remember her in. Everything okay. else, I, she's been in every... I have watched all of these dramas that you just mentioned. I don't remember her at all. <laughs> <laughs> I remember her in The Witch. And this is a phenomenal actor. Yes. I, I can't believe that she, like, it, the Youth of Me came out in 2021, right? Uh-huh. I can't believe she hasn't been at least in, like, I don't know, 30 other projects since then. I, I would agree. Have thought, 
I agree with that. Like what happened in the last year and a half or so? Why haven't I seen her in more? And I, and in bigger projects. Honestly, yeah. I think in Jerisan, she was in a, in a relatively minor role, I think. Um, okay, honestly, didn't watch enough of Jerisan to remember. But, uh, <laughs> but I mean, I'm glad Sweet Home is coming up, but there's nothing else. Like, uh-huh, uh-huh. yeah. Yeah. So I, I agree. forward to seeing her. <laughs> yeah. She was also the shaman in Decision to Leave from 2022, which is a Pak Chanuk movie. Uh, which I have not seen yet. <laughs> You're like, <"Ooh." laughs> all right. Um, so I have also some supporting cast members, but um, I'll just mention them briefly. So we have Yi Sang-yi. He plays Su-chan, effectively the second male lead. And of course, he had a really great year with Hometown Cha-Cha-Cha. Mm-hmm. And he's been in Yumi Cells, Crash Course in Romance, when the Camellia Blooms suits. So he's been in a lot of supporting roles throughout the years. We also have Kum Serok as Suryon, which is, she plays Sangi's sister in the show. And she has been in quite a few movies. And you might have seen her in The Age of Shadows, The Last Princess, Love Lies, Assassination, The Silence. These are all really poignant movies so i highly suggest watching any one of these i actually covered love lies on the patreon feed so she plays an adult kiseng and assassination like cut me up that's another one where she was it's like she plays bit parts in some of these movies but the movies themselves are amazing so i can only deduce that she picks really great projects i think she does have you seen her in the interest of love I have not seen The Interest of Love yet. I've been too busy, but I heard <laughs> terrible things about the show. No, no. Give it a chance. Listen, if you can sit through Youth of May, actually, oh my God. <laughs> Don't say that. Oh, no, God. no, no. That's that's uh, completely unfair. That's not true. Youth of May doesn't like stab you constantly throughout its runtime. <laughs> Whereas oh, no. Interest of Love kind of does. And um, <gasps> it's one of those dramas that you watch not okay i was about to say because you enjoy pain and that sounded wrong um no (laughs) (laughs) the masochist um because you are okay with like feeling those like the pangs that the drama uh gives you it's oh gotcha on the one hand it's like really interesting writing on the other hand by the second half you're really confused about why the writing is like this however when it comes to this actress um gomsarok was I think the standout performer. All oh. the actors cast was so good, but Gumsarok, she turned what could have been a very conventional, petty, jealous, second leadish character. I mean, the writing was good. They handed her really great material and she turned out to be, she turned out phenomenal. I, mm. I have so much respect for her, the way she portrayed the character and also just basically I have a lot of goodwill <laughs> towards her right oh. now <laughs> coming off uh, The Interest of Love. Yeah, I think this is my season to watch dramas that just like stab you. <laughs> In the last, uh, what, two months, I watched way too many of these dramas. Oh my God. And then like Youth of May on top of it. Okay. Yeah. So the last three names I'll shout out is Om Hyosop, who plays, um, what's her name? Gum Sedok's dad in the show. He's an Ajashi and he you've seen him in so many other projects. Yeah. I can't even sit here and name them. There's so many. You have Kim Won Hae, who plays um Myung-yi's dad, so um Gomin-si's dad, 
Also another Ajushi who you've seen a million times. He's amazing. And then I'll shout out Oman Sok as Huang Kinam, and he plays Hite's dad. Effectively the villain. <laughs> yes. So <laughs> uh, I think we've come to the end of who the cast is and the director and the writer. So Baruma, like, what did you think of Youth of May? <laughs> Ah, oh, I I don't know. It it defies <laughs> description. <laughs> um, I listen. It's hmm. for the main leads alone. I would probably watch this drama again. Um, knowing exactly where each beat falls, knowing exactly where my heart breaks and where it soars, mm-hmm. I would watch it again. The performance was truly something remarkable. Um, but also, let me just get this out there. Uh, being uh, an international viewer, I'm always fascinated when an entire show um, has characters speaking in full regional accent. Oh, and yeah. I, I, yeah, the Saturi here was, the Guangzhou Saturi was, was mad. Like, I have no idea how accurate it was. <laughs> what I do know is that they, it really helped with the, um, emotional delivery of certain lines. Like they felt they pulled more because it was spoken in Saturi. Mm. And I I just, I, I loved listening to the dialogue. It was like more musical to me, more emotional to me. So yeah, what did I think of it? I, I could not tell you. <laughs> I, I, I definitely enjoyed it. I, I enjoyed it a lot. I was not, because I was prepared for certain things, I think I enjoyed it more. I, I really genuinely don't think, I, I don't, we will keep this for the spoiler part. <laughs> okay, no problem. No problem. If it's too spoiler, you don't say it yet. So you do, you kind of mixed feelings about the show because it was so uh, heightened. No, strong, positive feelings. I gotcha. admired everything about it. I can't mm. really nitpick about a drama like this. Um, yeah, yeah. The, the, the only thing that I would say um, definitively is that I would recommend this drama to very few people and only mm. if they have shown that they are in the sort of mental space to watch a certain kind of drama. So this is not a drama that I would go around <laughs> like pushing people yes. into a cave and locking them <laughs> there I to agree. watch. Yeah, this isn't a one-size-fits-all show. I think you do need to have a strong foundation in K-dramas and have watched maybe some of the other sort of period pieces in K-drama, right? Not, I'm not talking necessarily about the Saguks and the ones that happened in the Chosun Dynasty and stuff like that. I really do feel like if you've watched some things that are in the 90s, like, I don't know, What's twenty five twenty one is in is in sure. set in the nineties. Yeah. So if you've seen stuff in that era, I think you might be okay to start some of these that are set in the eighties, which are way more politically charged and way more high stakes, and have a lot more that you might need to look up or understand to get grasp the full like importance and nature of what these characters are going through. So. I agree completely. I would never like sit here and be like, you got to watch Youth of May and you just watched, I don't know, Crash Landing on You yesterday. So no, that's not, (laughs) I don't think you could handle it. (laughs) So 
For me, I walked into this um, knowing that it was a sad story. Okay, that was like the full extent that I that I knew about the show was that it had a sad story and these two had a romance going. So I was like, okay, great. Then I get into, it's, it's, it's in 1980. First of all, it's like right in 1980. And I go, this is not looking good. This is not looking <laughs> good at all. I was like, so I thought it was like late eighties, like maybe 88, 89. No, it is like 1980. So I go, oh shit, this is not going to end well. Then um, I kind of felt like this was, how do I put it? Like each episode was sort of gaining a lot of momentum and having a lot of juice and sort of leaning into some sort of disaster that's going to happen later in the show I don't think it takes like a rocket scientist to kind of understand like the workings of the writing and how they structured each episode and how they're focusing a lot on the date and oh this person can only come you know get transferred to the hospital on this date and I'm like seems like dates are really important so then um I I think around episode six or seven I was like I know exactly what's going to happen. Like it just hit me from, Mm. you know, all these years of watching K-dramas and knowing about certain historical things like the Gwangju uprising slash massacre. I was like, oh, shit, this is going to culminate in this Gwangju uprising happening in the middle of everything. And it's going to be a train wreck. And so (laughs) I said to myself, I did this TikTok around episode. I was just about to watch episode nine. And I kind of said, I said, this feels like watching the Titanic for the first time. Mm. This feels like watching Jack and Rose board the Titanic. And you're like, I freaking love this love story, but I'm waiting for them to hit the iceberg. Oh, right. Man, this yeah. is what it felt like to watch this show, like to a T. And I would not recommend like a Titanic is one of those like global, like everybody knows what happened. And it felt like very similar, like, you know, they're focusing on the date a lot in the Titanic and they're focusing on the date a lot in Youth of May. And you're just devastated by the end of the show. And I loved the show, but I don't know if I would ever watch it again. I might do the same thing as I do watching the Titanic, which is I'll watch the first hour and a half, right? (laughs) (laughs) As soon as they hit the iceberg, I'm like, okay, I'm out. Like that's, I can't watch anymore because who wants to go through that heartbreak and devastation all over again? So for my mental health, this is a form of self-care. If I ever watch Youth of May again, I'll probably stop watching around episode eight or nine because anything more is it's just torture (laughs) it's so (laughs) sad and this is not to to spoil anything about what happens in the end we will talk about that in the spoiler section but I just found that this show was um how do I put it uh severely tragic (laughs) that's all I'll say. Yeah. Yeah. So yeah, I loved it, but it was it was painful. 
extremely painful. Like you said, the cast was amazing. I thought the acting was fantastic. I thought the writing was unassailable. I thought they did very well pacing this and building them up and tearing them down. (laughs) And um, the villain was a proper villain. And the circumstances are, you know, that's the conceit of the show, right? Is that they're star-crossed lovers and they have no idea. You're literally watching like a Romeo and Juliet thing play out. You're like... I don't know how to help. There's no way to help them. Like you can't undo what's happened. And I actually thought uh, going into the final few episodes that maybe they would do like a revisionist take on the Guangzhou massacre. Like, Uh, have you seen um, Once Upon a Time in Hollywood? That movie? I have. But the one I was thinking of was um, Moonlight Drawn... By Cloud. Oh, what is that called? Yes. Love in the Moonlight? <laughs> Love in the Moonlight. But that's an alternate title. Yeah. yeah, Moonlight yeah. Drawn I, by I always forget what the exact longer <laughs> title is. Moonlight Drawn by Cloud? Something yes. like that. <laughs> yeah. Right? That They did a revision over there. Yeah. And I think they had to because the final, uh, like, third of the drama had, like, really started lagging and people were, like, coming out with pitchforks. Like, after this, <laughs> if you give us a sad ending. <laughs> Yeah, so I thought maybe they'll do a revisionist take on this terrible atrocity that happened in ni- May 1980. And no, 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 no. They they did not do that. Yeah. So, um, oh, God, I don't know what else to say. Like, I don't think we can. Well, let's talk about the Guangzhou uprising and uh, maybe some comps if you don't want to dive in to youth of may right now like maybe some of these other ones might be okay for for you to like kind of dip your feet into this era of korean history but uh so the Gwangju uprising happened between may 18th and may 27th 1980 the uprising was one of the largest uprisings in the country as students rebelled against the authoritarian government because at the time it was a military dictatorship Nearly a quarter of a million people participated in the rebellion. And although it was brutally repressed and initially unsuccessful in bringing about democratic reform in South Korea, it's considered to be a huge pivotal moment in the South Korean struggle for democracy. This is really annoying to me, but I'll say this, say this, um, these numbers is that officially over 100 people were killed. However, it's estimated from Guangzhou citizens that the death toll is over like several thousand. So the government's numbers are about like a little over a hundred people died. And in reality, it's probably thousands of people were murdered. Um, You mentioned this before we started the podcast, but yes, the U S government had a hand in the Guangzhou uprising because at the time there was a strong military presence from the U S in Korea. There still is. Um, because it was not too far removed from the Korean War. And so the government, the corrupt authoritarian government, did get permission from the U.S. to do this this um, uprising, to quell the uprising in Gwangju with federal soldiers, basically, not like local police or anything. And the U.S. said, yeah, sure, do what you have to do. So there is that. 
to be perfectly fair, they were federally funded soldiers. They weren't like American soldiers. So yes. they were local soldiers, but like federally funded. They, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Um, the other interesting thing that I found out a while back was that um, the U.S. always claimed that the information they were getting from the South Korean government at the time um, was basically misinformation. Um, they had like basically mischaracterized the uprising. They were saying oh, I that have no was, doubt. I have no yeah. doubt. Yeah. Um, they were saying that it's it's spreading everywhere. They're going to destabilize yeah. the government. And and around that time, they have uh, the U.S. was involved in. Um, well, I don't want to get too much into it, but basically, there were Middle Eastern politics happening, and um, rebellions and uprisings were uh, spreading massively. And they didn't want a similar situation happening in Korea where they had a really strong base and they wanted to keep that base because of China and Russia. And so while they say that it was a misrepresentation that caused them to, you know, they, they don't exactly say they gave the go ahead, but, you know, it's, it's an excuse that's used. It's also been admitted and said that um, the U.S. knew that, you know, what South Korea was saying wasn't actually true. But it uh, supported because the Red Scare was still very much present. Yes, so, 1980. <laughs> yeah, so they were like, we we kind of know this government. They are brutal and all of that, but it's a devil we know. We don't want this destabilized, so mm. we will just quell the students instead. So that's kind of like a background on, um, you know, a little mm-hmm. bit of U.S. involvement there. Yes, so the Gwangju uprising, how do I put it? It, it paved the way for like the 1988-89 the democracy that came in. But this is the Titanic that I'm talking about. <laughs> that, <laughs> you know, in the show, everything's leading up to May 18th and the days that follow. And it's pretty impressive to see how they recreated this in what I consider painstaking detail. Yeah. Uh, to and they didn't even go as far as they could have with the uprising and if you see some footage from the uprising you're like this is like it puts it, it stiffens you because you're just like oh my god they didn't go as far as they could have at all but they presented it as well as they they could have like considering you can't put everything you want to on TV in Korea there are like certain rules and regulations that you have to follow And um, the director said, I thought that I had to approach it carefully. In general, I wanted to express the truth without any inaccuracies or distortions. If you watch Youth of May, the incidents aren't portrayed in detail, which I would agree. They're not in detail. It's not gratuitous. But, you know, it is to get the point. It gets the point across for sure. He also says there are still people around us who have experiences and thoughts of those incidents. Although they may each have different memories, it's something we can't make up as we please. I approached it carefully. Mm. So I think that's pretty... uh, He seemed to have wanted to take as much of a respectful angle on it as possible. And even as a foreign viewer, I, I sort of understood that while watching. You know, he didn't go full james cameron with it (laughs) like you know if you watch titanic but yeah um did you have any thoughts about he was really smart um in keeping the lens of the story entirely focused on 
this couple and their yeah. immediate surroundings. It's mm-hmm. like uh, a spotlight following just them around. Like the uprising was happening around them. Everything was happening around them. But instead of telling the story of the uprising, he was telling the story of these two people caught, mm-hmm. you know, within this situation. Yeah. So that that is smart. I, I don't actually uh, think the story ever really veers away from, you know, this central uh, conceit. Like it never becomes like, you know, long montages of like um, mm-hmm, military mm-hmm. operation happening or like, you know, rebellions mm-hmm. in other parts. That's simply not the focus of the story. The focus of the story is like the vulnerability of like innocent people living their lives, dreaming their dreams, having their hopes, mm-hmm. falling in love and, you know, uh, sort of resisting the petty oppressions of family and social class. And then suddenly having like the tsunami sweeping them uh, yeah. off their feet. It's um, mm-hmm. it's kind of like it's like the the tiny existence of people versus like an inevitable um, tragedy. It's uh, yeah. Mm-hmm. I, I thought he was very smart in the way he wrote the story. Yeah. I'm sorry. I don't actually know who wrote the story. Um, oh no, that was the director that was talking about right. kind of how he worked it in. Worked about it. it. Was, uh, the screenwriter was Ekong. I'm sorry. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. So there are some other K dramas that cover this era of the 1980s, and that would be probably like Reply 1988, uh, which also has like one of the one of the girls, the sister of the main character, is a protester in like mm-hmm. 1988, and so that's a huge deal, and the family dealing with that and being very fearful of the consequences of her being involved in this, like these political rallies and stuff like that. You could also, if you feel so inclined, watch Snowdrop, which is sort of a bastardization of this era as well. Uh, We do have a scathing review of Snowdrop on the feed. If you want to scroll back in your podcast feed, I was telling Paramount and we just really ripped into Snowdrop, not because of like the the story or the premise or anything about it it was like the execution and the decisions that they made were just not not okay so we had a really fun time actually um watching snowdrop despite the political problems and discussions around that story i think uh, the the drama would have had a lot more support if it actually told a cohesive story if the story itself was good (laughs) like i'm telling you we went through it watching (laughs) snowdrop and trying to not i mean anyway uh, long story short go back scroll back (laughs) in your podcast feed to listen to that one it was uh interesting so i think we've come to the end of our general thoughts on youth of may and at this point we're gonna break for spoilers because uh, it's it's just time it's way high time that we get into spoilers so If you care to be spoiled, don't listen on. But if you don't care and you've watched Youth of May before, stick around. We'll be right back after this. You want to come in? Okay, Paroma, we're on the other side of spoilers. So anything (laughs) goes. What would you like to talk about first in this spoiler section? Um, Uh, I think... Okay, so... I, there is this, <laughs> there is this thing that happens at the end of the drama that is 
is a tragedy that we've been talking about, like the heartbreak and all of that stuff. Mm-hmm. And the our main couple, um, Hite and Myunghee, they don't know that that's coming. Um, what they so they don't know that there's a time limit on their romance, but they actually had a different time limit on their romance. Like Myunghee um, had ambitions of going and studying medicine abroad. So when they first met each other, which, by the way, we have to talk about how absolutely adorable their first meeting was. Oh, my God, stop. (laughs) (laughs) Um, When they decided that they would date, kind of, finally, um, it was with the understanding that this is like a a limited time. They would be together for a limited time before he left. And this intensity of their relationship was because if you think about it it was just a matter of what three or four weeks that they knew each other the the totality of their relationship of like from the moment he saw her first to the very end and the repercussions like the resonance of that that lasted for decades afterwards it's just something else and the I, I loved your comparison to the Titanic because Oh my God, exactly the same. There was an artificial sort of like limit to their relationship because Rose was engaged to this asshat. And and they always knew that their relationship was like not something that could last. But they didn't realize that that was not the actual thing. That wasn't it. Yeah. But that also intensified their relationship as brief, as, you know, uh, fleeting, ephemeral as it was. I love that. Yeah. Um, yeah, she's going to go to Germany to study abroad and become a doctor, I believe. And I was like, why does she want to go to Germany in 1980? I was like, oh my God, who wants to do that? But anyway, um, I think yeah, he's seen it at one point because yeah. schools wouldn't let you take admission unless you're studying to be a doctor. I think she was going there to be a nurse though, because that, oh, that one distinction, she, yeah, because she uh, made that distinction, like Korean medical schools only let you apply yes. if you're studying to be a doctor. Correct. So, that's right. That's yeah, right. That's so she why... was like, I don't want to be a full on doctor, but like I want a degree. So she was like, I'll just study abroad um, because the system wasn't set up for her. And essentially, no. um, True. so he asked her, why don't we stay for the for the entirety of May? Like, let's just stay until the end of may Mm. and i was i mean he's adorable when he's when he asks her this he's like halfway drunk he's been serenading her on the guitar and she's like i'll let you know when you're sober and that just kind of kicks off the rest of their sort of quick romeo and juliet-esque love story because yes they fall in love in the span of like really (laughs) in a few days they're in love with each other like irrevocably in love with each other it is, uh, they cannot be separated, even though they end up getting really just put through the ringer even before May 18th comes around. Yeah. Um, they are devoted to each other. So it's, but you believe it. I I think this is the great, the great thing that the show did is that I fully believe in their love story and in their devotion to one another and that they you know, sometimes you watch a K-drama and people fall in love and you're like, I don't really get like why these two are together. I don't get like why they sort of gravitated to one another. And like, I don't really, I don't get it. Like why I don't believe it. I don't buy in. I 
bought in completely. I bought stock. I was setting (laughs) up shop. I was like ready to go. And you mentioned their meet cute. Like their meet cute is (laughs) so cute. Um, What is it? She, um, it's a fake dating trope. Mm-hmm. It's mistaken identity trope. She Same goes to proposal. yes, she goes exactly like business proposal. She takes her friend's place on this blind date, and he sees her like performing emergency of help on this kid that just got run over in the street right near the hotel that they were supposed to meet at, and he's in the middle of a full-on panic attack because he has trauma of his own. And he, even though he's a doctor, he's like paralyzed and can't do anything. But she jumps into action and she looks fabulous doing it. (laughs) I'm helping this kid in the street. And he spends like a few minutes waiting for her in the lobby of this, or in this um, cafe area in this hotel, thinking, I really need to, I hope I need to meet that girl again because she was amazing. And lo and behold, she sits down for the first date and I'm like, oh, Oh my god. Like he's immediately like, oh my god, hey, it's her. So the build up, <laughs> like everything. See, the episode ends at just him grinning year to year and like just oh! staring at her, being like, Jackpot! It's her. <laughs> it's her. I like how how is this miracle? And it's perfect because everything from the music to just the way the camera zooms in on uh, either Hyun's face and just doesn't leave because man, this this guy has such great control over his facial expressions. Oh my God. And Gobin sees um, Myung-hee is sitting there very confused about this guy who's just staring at her and grinning, grinning so hard. (laughs) Oh my God. Uh, That's perfect. So So he immediately attaches himself to her and everything that she tries to do very similar to business proposal. She's trying to stink the date and he doesn't care. Like he knows that she's a good person. He knows that she's uh, faking it and trying to like get him to run away from her. And he's not having it. He's like, I'm here to stay. Like she's like, I want beer (laughs) instead of tea on the date. And he's like, okay, cool. Like I'll take some too. Like every single thing that she does is only enhancing his intrigue about her. Mm. So I loved it. I love that she is so uh, sort of precious and a very perfect archetype of what a woman should be in that time period, especially. And even so, she is subverting a lot of things in just her ambition and her trying to be a nurse and her being very decisive in high intensity situations. You know, she's very quick in, uh, you know, performing emergency services and just being so um, available and stuff like that. I just found that really fascinating that even though she's very feminine, she's always dressing in in skirts and dresses and stuff and she's very soft-spoken and she just... On top of that, she has goals and ambitions of her own and she wants to study abroad and she has a fractured relationship with her dad and like all this stuff makes her seem like she's they're trying to like turn the archetype on its head, which is 
which is very cool to see. Mm. I think they also did a pretty um, nice mirroring of, and they. Oh, this is actually pretty typical of K-dramas, but I think they did it particularly well in this one, where uh, the second male lead um, and the female lead, and on the other side, the second female lead and the male lead, kind of, they mm-hmm. usually seem, tend to have the same kind of background, the same kind of personality, all of that. Um, in this particular case... <laughs> Uh, Gomserok's character isn't exactly a second male, a, sorry, second female lead uh, of the typical breed. Like she has yeah. not much interest in the main lead, but <laughs> like her personality, and at some point it's pointed out uh, that uh, Hite's personality and Soryun, which is the uh, Serok's uh, character, their personalities yeah. are very similar, that they could mm-hmm. be siblings. And I like that. I like the, I always like it when they do this juxtaposition of here is the perfect person for you, possibly. Mm. And Mm. then you are actually attracted to somebody who's wholly different. And on paper, it shouldn't work, but it works so well. (laughs) Yes. Yes. I agree completely that, you know, the BFF, I'll call her the BFF. uh, She is sort of, built the same way that Hite is and I agree completely that it was very frustrating in the in the moment when you're watching when people surrounding these characters are like oh you guys are the same you guys are perfect for each other and all this stuff and I'm like shut up they're not they're not meant to be <laughs> but yeah absolutely they are essentially the same person uh and it's cool it's it's interesting I like this kind of angst in a k-drama where you're like okay the person who's supposed to be with him who by all rights should be with him and especially now with like all of these forces pushing them together they're still like like rebelling you know like when a kid like is having a tantrum and they like like arch their back on the floor and stuff like that was literally both of them with this relationship (laughs) trying to get out of it and you know, get to where they want to be. He wants to be with Myeongyi. She wants to be a, a rebel, you know? She wants to lead the charge on all of these protests and be a revolutionary. And it's it's very cool to see. She fa- I found that the BFF reminded me a lot of, um, oh my God, Mr. Sunshine. Uh, What's her name? Yeah. Oh my God, from 2521. No, what is her name? Uh, hold on. Uh, Kim Teri? Uh, Kim Teri, thank yeah. you. <laughs> Kim Teri's character in Mr. Sunshine felt a lot like the BFF in yeah. this I agree. Youth of May. Yeah. Except that um, Soryun... Okay, so something... The other thing that I liked about the writing was how subtle they were about establishing characters. So pretty quickly you get uh, a handle on the kind of person Soryun is. She is very single-minded. She's mm. very stubborn. She's also selfish. Yes. Um, there are like definite moments when, and you have uh, Hite calling her out on it. Like practically the yeah. first time they actually meet as, you know, them, they're sitting out in the garden. They're speaking about like the ruse that just got busted. Mm-hmm. Um, and he pegs her perfectly. He's like, you don't seem the kind of person who actually cares about other people's feelings. And mm. Which is point, mm. you know, completely proved correct. Like the next moment when she's like, "No, no, Myung he has no feelings for you." But it actually never even occurred to her to actually inquire if a right. friend does. So it's, 
I, I really liked how um, they established the characters with examples of action instead of trying yes. to have like, you know, show, don't tell that. that exactly. Thing, but exactly. So yeah. I ended up hating that BFF character, to be quite <laughs> honest with you. Because I mean, they, yeah, yeah, yeah. I know. She makes the wrong decision every time. Like every time she's faced with a dilemma, she doesn't do the right thing. She always is self-servicing and selfish and she considers her own family before other people and it's not like this is the first time they establish in the story that she has been caught before Mm. putting up uh what was it like flyers at their school when they were in high school and she never gets she never gets uh punished for that and Myungi does, even though it like wasn't her idea. She didn't lead the charge on it. She was just one of a few. And she gets expelled from the school. Like she gets set back, you know? Mm. If this was a game, she would move back 10 paces. Yeah, I know. And I, the thing is, you don't actually see Isorion being particularly apologetic to Myungi for oh, what yeah. happened. Oh my God, yeah. And the fact that that whole uh, dating ruse that she suggested... Yeah. It happened because Myungi needed money for her airfare to Germany. A yeah. friend would have been like, I will get that for you. I'll get it for you. Uh, yeah. She was like, was, why don't you do this for me? Why don't I, I buy like, uh, yeah. your lie? It's, uh, yeah. Fuck you, <laughs> bitch. I hated her. Like, by the end, I was like, uh, thank God that she was the one that imploded their relationship and said, like, why don't we just, like, say fuck it and you go back to Guangzhou and get with Myungi and I'll, like, do as I please here. And if I want to go back to Guangzhou and, like, kick a fuss against the government, and that's my biz. So that was the only part that I was like, okay, finally, she made the right decision. She because She tortured she was the one who, them so much. She tortured them. <laughs> She's the one who tortured them and, like, didn't let the lie, uh, didn't tell the truth. When she should have. And he warned her. He was like, we can't let this go any further than it already has. Because then we can't get out. And she was like too scared, too fearful to do anything about it. And was more content with just leaving things as they are. Naively thinking that they weren't going to get out of hand. Things weren't going to get out of hand. That's the definition of privilege, right? She never actually had to face real consequences. Every time she's done something that's bad enough her dad's gotten her out of it and clearly not explained to her what he has had to give up like literally mm. every time this man asks for a favor from somebody that is a favor that's held against him in this political atmosphere and <sighs> the his daughter is just like well i guess my dad's gonna do that again next time i get caught doing something rebellious and that just yeah. doesn't allow you to respect her actions as a student protesting against a uh, you know, dictatorial government, because what she is doing is still selfish within, mm-hmm. you know, the frame of her family, her friends. I mean, yeah. yeah. I was very upset with her throughout the show because she just seemed so irrefutably selfish. Yeah. And there was nothing that she could do to redeem like after a certain point i was like she's fucked them all like that's because hite was the one that was like i don't want to do this i don't want to be here you tell your people to back out because my dad's the devil and he's not gonna let me back out so like you do it wear the pants and like man up shut this thing down and she never did 
She never did. So that was very frustrating throughout the show. Her brother, on the hand. Her brother. (laughs) Do you want to talk about the brother? So Isangi's character, again, I felt that he was extremely naive Mm -hmm. because... Yes, he was jealous of Hite's relationship with Myeongi. Yes, he was trying, I'm using air quotes, trying to do what was best for Myeongi and warn her about Hite because he's got like all of these crazy rumors surrounding him. But at the end of the day, he was very selfish as well. Mm. And they're so stupid. Like the whole family is like, Let's just get in league with the devil. And we know he's a bad person. We know that Hite's dad is powerful and manipulative. But he probably won't be manipulative to us because we'll be in-laws. And it's like, no, baby. No. They were so insulated in their world. And there was no... They they thought there would be no consequences for getting in bed with the devil. Mm. So... I mean, him, the dad, I was like the dad. I wrote off the dad when he said, I don't care if people say that I sold off my child. Yeah. You're going to marry this guy. You have to marry him for the sake of our family business. So I was like, this whole family, just throw them in the trash. Just throw them away. <laughs> They're terrible. <laughs> oh, my God. I yeah. I will say that. There was this one uh, dynamic I absolutely loved, which was um, Myung-hee's brother and uh, Tae's brother. Oh, uh, Hite's brother. My gosh, yes. Um, the young ones were like, my God, they were, they were like a relief from all yes. of the family <laughs> drama that was happening. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I agree. They were very cute. They had their own arcs mm. as well. You know, they came, um, Hite's younger brother was very upset and stuff about people calling his mother the mistress and the kids kind of living their lives and having fun and stuff without him. But he had to go home every day. He couldn't stay in the, in the dorms with all of the other runners. And he was like, I don't want to be home. I want to be here with these kids. Like, I don't want them to think that I'm privileged basically. Mm. Even though he never said that, he was like, I want to be at the dorms. So he goes to live there. And even though him and the little brother, Myeongi's little brother got off on the wrong foot, like he fixed it instantly when he stood up for Myeongi's little brother. They were making fun of their crippled dad. They were walking around and making fun of him because they're little assholes. And um, there is a huge stigma back then about uh, people with disabilities, and they were making mm. fun of it. It was like wild. I was shocked. And Hite's little brother like punches out the kids, and like from then on, they're okay. I you know? there was a line between them that I really loved, um, where uh, Hite's little brother went and said, because this was this was his nemesis who had just done something great for him, I who know. defended his yeah. dad. So, oh. and he was being punished, of course, by the coach. And so he uh, goes, so myung Su is the, uh, uh, you know, um, what's her name? Uh, Myung-hee's uh, yes. little brother. So myung Su goes to uh, Jong-tae, which is Hite's brother, and is like, um, didn't you listen to the coach? He said we should never cross the line. And by that, he means like the racetrack lines, you know, where each runner should stick to their own um, track. 
And um, I love the line that Zhang Fei says, which is that I don't think you heard what the coach said in entirety. He said for, um, you know, I think long uh, runners, I don't know what they're called. Um, Short distance runners. Short distance runners don't cross the lines, but we're long distance runners. Yeah, exactly. So we we, we should know. We should know when it's okay to cross the line. Yeah. I, I... I love that. Like, such great lines, even for the kids. Yeah. So, yeah. Overall, oh by God. the way, great dialogue in this drama. Just oh so good. Oh, my cool God. Yes. Um, I have a line here from Hite in episode two. He tells Myungi, every time I see you, I feel like catching up on all the smiles I missed in the last few years. Yeah. <gasps> <laughs> How can you not fall for this man? Oh, my God. She had no chance. She stood no chance. Like, of course, she was going to fall for this guy um they have this stunning speaking of them too they have this stunning scene in episode two where he's bandaging her sprained ankle in this yeah. like cherry tree grove in front of like this pond or something at and it's golden hour and i was like this is like k-drama crack this is a k-drama crack moment right where you're just like i need it in my veins right now it's perfect and i just love their dynamic here and now he's like helping her but she's like doesn't want to really deal with it but she's it's such a romantic scene and i can't i really can't it's so so great speaking of romantic oh my god before i forget um episode four the turnaround scene where he's like turn around turn around didn't didn't that remind you of the movie the um Dilwale Dulhenia. Yeah, of course. Oh that, that's the one God. that I was thinking of, but I wasn't sure if you were going to refer an Indian movie. Oh my yeah. God, yes. So when I saw it, I was like, it's that scene with the Shaka Khan. Like, oh my God. I was like freaking out because they did it. They copy and pasted it into the show and it works so well. But honestly, you you should, you should all see the movie that we just referenced and see that scene in its entirety because it's a plus plus romance right there um absolutely uh let me see episode six uh the uh, this is another second male lead thing where he says stages an intervention with myongi and he tells her that you know everyone makes mistakes. It's okay. Hita is not a good person. It's not too late to like get away from him and fix it. And that Hita is deceiving her and all this stuff. And she goes, "It's a choice I made. I've lived my entire life giving up and yielding because I had no courage. But Huang Hita is the first choice I made by gathering up the courage. Even if you curse and throw rocks at me, it's a choice I made. So I'll pay the consequences." Yeah. Great moment for her. Great moment of growth. For her because absolutely she's been yielding her entire life and you see that she's been such a victim throughout her whole life and that like leaning into Hite is a giant moment for her and she won't give it up easily so I thought that was a beautiful moment even though again suck a male lead Isangi <sighs> being a little fart um yeah and he was such a great second main lead in Hongdan Cha Cha Cha. Like the first right? second main lead. All second main right? lead should be that. <laughs> um, I thought that Myungi and Hite ended up having a very healthy relationship, like despite everything, because 
even though they did make some mistakes and they were withholding information from each other, they ended up developing a better working relationship, which was like Myungi said, I, you know, even though everything is hard and I'm having a bad day and things, you know, I don't regret being with you. Mm. And even if we're not, she says, even if we're not always strong and at our best, I would like us to be able to show each other everything. And so they established this like bond and this trust between one another that they end up keeping for the most part through the end of the show. Uh, And it's it's particularly poignant because because the show shows us um, in that brief macro season what their relationship could be if it was allowed to uh, bloom. It's, um, yeah... You can oh. understand why this is an unforgettable love for both of them. Mm. Why it could it would have to be each other and nobody else. In other cases, you might be like, move on. I mean, mm. maybe <laughs> a decade later, come on, but move on. But, but mm-hmm. it would be hard to move on from this. Mm-hmm. Um, I did want to touch on Myungi and her dad and their relationship and how... She ends up confronting her dad in episode seven. She got kid. It was this whole thing. Like episode seven had tons of things happening. Yeah. She got kidnapped by Hite's dad, and this she guy was put is a through cartoon villain. He's a villain. fucking <laughs> asshole. Yes. So he threatens her, and he says, "Like you're not going to Germany. There's no way your visa is getting approved because, you know, not only did you upset me by being in a relationship with my son, but your dad's a commie, a sworn commie." And she goes home to that their like little hometown and she confronts the dad and she asks like, is she a commie's daughter? Is that why nothing ever works out for her? Is that why she struggled all her life? Why didn't he tell her? She wouldn't have gotten her hopes up had she known that she had this like black spot on her her whole life. So I thought it was very interesting i thought their relationship was like ostensibly like the second best thing of the show was her mm. complex relationship with her dad and how he was like i just didn't want you to grow up with that stigma of being a communist daughter even though he wasn't a communist he was there was like this whole thing where he his dad framed him for being a communist 27 years ago and he crippled him that's how he became um a cripple i mean honestly it was very k-drama but at the same time it was very poignant to see her grapple with this revelation and to see her dad try and fix it try and fix their relationship and mend their relationship and like oh my god it him trying to give her a dignified life and it didn't matter. Like, it didn't matter because she was so, like, it just never, nothing ever worked out for her regardless. So I was, I was a mess. Like, I don't know about you, but I was a mess during uh, I, all I agree. those. I, I also thought it was uh, uh, an interesting and also probably really smart choice to make the protagonists unrelated kind of to the protests. Like, these are both people who would fight for justice, who would stand up for people, who are standing up for people, but they are not taking on the larger burden of the uprising. 
Mm. And they don't have political, like, they, they are not out there um, fighting for their political beliefs. They are just mm-hmm. living their everyday lives and supporting yeah. those who are fighting in whatever capacity they can. Because uh, you see um, Myung-hee uh, helping her friend. You see um, Hite constantly helping his friends. I mean, that's kind of how he got his trauma. And yeah. But neither of them are, you know, central. They're not on the front lines. Yeah. They're not on the front lines. And this is a mm-hmm. story about people who are not on the front lines. And then mm-hmm. which, which allows you to sympathize with Myung-hee when she confronts her father. Because to her, she was just living her life mm. and did not know, like, how these larger politics were directly affecting her. Mm. And why she was, it was so easy for people to believe that, you know, she would do something like the thing that had happened in her high school. It was just, yeah. I mean, you can, you, you can understand why she would break she down feels, like that. So yeah, yeah, and she feels that it's unfair, which it is. It is. I agree. It is. Oh, one note. Oh. So our up? main evil dad, the oh. guy who is like, um, whom nobody wants in their family, which I, which is the line I absolutely loved. Yes. Um, like prime burn, man. Like the, to hear that from your son. Um, the, so yeah. This guy was also the villain of Crash Landing on You. Yes, he was, which I found very fitting. Uh, very similar um, character in both these dramas. And um, he did crash landing on you just before he did. You thought <laughs> <laughs> Yep. Yep. Uh, the villain vibe carried over. Uh, I really thought he was a grand villain because he didn't, it wasn't just he was evil for evil's sake. There was a huge amount of hubris mm, to him. Absolutely. And him wanting control over his family and wanting more power and prestige in this volatile political environment was like you understood. I understood that. You know what I'm saying? There wasn't just like he was evil for evil's sake. Like not exactly. And him and Hite's relationship was maddening maddening to watch because in no way shape or form is he a father Mm. right he's a bully he's um constantly intimidating hite and you know i at no way did i believe that they had that he loved his kids you know there was no love in him at all and yeah in the later episodes uh, what is it like in episode 11 or 12 he's got his son Hite tied up in a room in the house locked away mm-hmm. and he to, in order to get Hite back he had to like ram a vehicle into the ambulance that he was riding that Hite was in and so he's all messed up from the accident he's got all these injuries he's got head trauma for sure and he still has him tied up. No medical assistance has been given to his son. And he has this conversation where he is lying prostrate on the floor, tied up, and he's standing above him. And I'm like, is that not the perfect representation of their relationship where he's constantly stepping on his son and keeping him tied down, keeping him 
you know, where he wants him and controlled. And I love how Hita just takes the opportunity. He ungags him and he just starts talking. And Hita's trying his best to use words against his dad. And one of the final things that he says is, well, the dad compares him to an orphan. You're an orphan. And, you know, you're basically at my mercy. And he says, I'm not the orphan you are because no one would ever choose you to be their family. Yeah. I, and I that cuts that. him. Ah. It's, am- it's amazing. Yeah. And it okay. comes back around. <laughs> go, go, go. Finish. Then I have something. Okay. Else. Perfect. So anyway, it comes back around because the young son it goes to save Myungi from an assassination because the dad orders an assassination of Myungi in episode 12. And he thinks back. The dad ends up thinking back to this moment where he says, you know, you're the orphan. No one would want you as your family because the family's like, get off of me. Like they're all like shaking him off whenever he tries to touch them and they they abandon him. Mm -hmm. They leave without him. And it's such a moment. So I really like that it comes back around and he realizes that he's right, that Hite was right about him. Okay. What did you have? You got really excited. Well, what did you want to talk I about? I just Rafa? remembered that <laughs> I, I had watched Beautiful World, I think, in January this year. Again, after, like, I should just take all of Saya's recommendations seriously. I don't know why I keep dealing watching anything she recommends because I always end up loving them. She's been trying to get me to watch Beautiful World for like three years now. And I watched it. And um, Oman Sook was exactly the same kind of father in that drama too. <laughs> His, his son was like a teenager, like a 14-year-old teenager. But um, yeah, the guy was exact. I, if I, he may have been stereotyped a little bit in the in the casting choices, but oh, he he's definitely typecast. Yeah, he plays this type so well. My <laughs> God, it's like it's it's nuanced devilry. It just he's mm. so horrible. But you can kind of see how his gears function, like how they move. Mm-hmm. So, mm-hmm. yeah. Yeah. I agree. It is nuanced devilry for sure. For sure. For sure. Um, <laughs> so I have a few more things to talk about really fast. So I'll go through them fast. But um, in episode seven, like so much stuff happens in episode seven. But in episode seven, um, Hite is waiting for Myungi at the station because they had this like full on like breakup on the bridge after she's been kidnapped and she's been awake for like what 24 hours or something like that. She's got a concussion for sure because they hit her on the head. She's a mess. She looks Mm. sick, Mm. ill. And he's waiting for her at the station after this blow off fight that she had with her dad. She walks past him at the station and he follows her calling out to her. She walks into the middle of a protest and he's stuck on the sidewalk, can't get to her. And I was like, this is very symbolic of how the politics just got in the way, like the times just got in the way of their relationship. It was the right relationship at the wrong time. And they couldn't overcome this wave of tyranny. And she's riding dangerously close to the protesters. And he's scared to jump into the fray. And when he finally catches up to her, they have their conversation finally in an alley and it's a dead end. And I was like, oh, my God, this is like mimicking their relationship that there's just no road ahead. They're at a dead end. And 
it's just I thought it was very well done as far as staging goes Mm. and it was a beautiful beautiful whole like sequence of them talking and of course it's very emotional and you know she's like I'm this one she says I'm scared of you and he takes that to heart because he's like I don't want her to be afraid of me like you know so it's crazy um I'm trying to think of my notes uh yo so episode eight do you think that because they get back together um and he goes home with her and they make out in her little room that she has in the boarding house and they wake up the next day in the same bed but they're fully closed did you think that they had sex because i assumed that they had sex listen i if they wake up in the same bed um yeah and nobody mentions anything, I assume they've had sex. Because <laughs> <laughs> no. they didn't say anything. They were, they were you know, If they there did was say no men- something, if one yeah. of them was like, did we? Last, for, for sure, they haven't had sex. For sure, what? it's a fake out. <laughs> what? They, they only ever seem to mention it when the punchline is that the other person is like, ah, I mean, I wish. <laughs> but no. <laughs> I assume that they had sex, but you're like, if they, you know, they did not. I think not. so, too. I agree. No, no, I agree. Okay. But they didn't mention it, so it's... They didn't. Yeah, so I'm, I'm going with the... They had it. So I think one of the only issues that I had with the show was the person that got Hite to Guangzhou was this friend, a friend of a friend, basically, that he had saved, and she was in the ICU, and basically mm-hmm. the outlook was really bad for her she was in a vegetative state and he wanted to move her transfer her to Guangzhou and that's how he ends up in Guangzhou and the whole thing that person the sort of comrade that he feels incredibly responsible for this person like you don't really know anything about the this labor union leader is except that she was brave you know and I found her to be more of a device right than you know anything more she seemed so much like a device especially later on when um, the bff goes to the hospital with hite in seoul to visit her on the eve of them transferring her to guangju and uh she ends up saying like oh she protested and stood up for what she believed in even though it was hard even though she was definitely scared and it kind of jolts her into action again and she's like why am i like just living my life so passively and letting everything happen to me i should do what she did even though i'm scared i need to like stand up for what i believe in and the very next day she like cuts hite loose and she's like go back to guangju and like we'll just deal with it you know so again i just felt like she was just a catalyst for these characters instead of something more you know yeah we never find out what happens to her she never we never find out she wakes up or if she dies or something, it's just, you know. She she wasn't particularly important as a person. She was uh, important as connections between people. Um, mm-hmm. Between um, Hite and his soldier friend. Like yes. his communist friend who uh, got drafted <laughs> into the army he hated. And yes. my God, what a tragic turn that was. Oh my God. So, let well, let me see if there's anything else um oh my god yeah one last thing episode 11 and then we'll talk about the end game episode Mm. so episode 11 there's this friend who had been tortured for days 
before even May 11th, May 18th came around, they had like kidnapped him and were torturing him for information. And now he's finally facing off against the devil dad. I just call him the devil dad in my notes. <laughs> uh, but the friend thinks back to a conversation he had with Hite where he asked him, if I get caught, would mentioning your name get me out? Mm. And Hite assures him that mentioning his name to his dad or anyone else would get him killed. So we cut back to the present and he's like face to face with the devil dad and he just starts laughing because inadvertently, Hite has given him a cyanide pill. And he uses it in that moment. He causes a fuss over begging the devil dad to spare him and dropping Hite's name and he gets bludgeoned to death by the devil dad and i found this so powerful and uh i don't know what just amazing in a in a sense because you don't expect such a ludicrous unhinged ending for this guy and for it to be so meaningful in a sense yeah so I don't know if you felt any type of way about that scene, but I was I like, did. oh my God. Because I kept expecting, I honestly didn't expect um, him to like get out or anything like that. Because yeah. Because he was clearly like, even though the PD and the writer were not focusing on the larger uprising, they had chosen people around our protagonists who were suffering yeah. in different ways. And like this character was clearly, you know, uh, sort of a symbol of like the suffering a lot of protesters were going through, Mm -hmm. the ones who were already in jail. And of course, this entire thing may have peaked in May, but it had been happening for years at Uh that point. Simmering. Um, So students were being picked up randomly. The smallest accusation could get you behind uh, bars. So it's, and it kept on happening even after that for years. Oh, yeah. It's not like it peaked and ended. Yeah. So I kind of assumed this character would probably end up dying. Yeah. But same. I thought that they were building up to, I don't know, something momentous. Like he gives away something big or something like mm-hmm. that. I was not expecting him to like basically, like you said, do what he did, which is like put an end to his own misery and also ensure that he can't like betray mm. uh, his friends. It's just, it was really poignant. And to use your abusers your your assailants weakness yes against him like that yes um, yeah that was that was splendid it, tragic oh was splendid tragic yeah uh episode 11 this is and we're gonna talk about in-game episodes so the de- myungi's dad and the younger brother myungsu try to make it back on foot to yeah. naju and yeah. they get lost in the dark and the soldiers find them and the dad leaves to try and talk to the soldiers. And I was like, he's dead. He's going to die. And next episode, last episode, we find out that he does. They murder him in cold blood. And oh, my God, this was terrible because she never sort of reconciles with him in a way. He, to the bitter end, was trying to support her in the only way he knew how. And he had saved every bit of money that he had made and saved all of the money that she sent back home. And he put it in a savings account and he was like, this is for you. And to get your life started 
and for it was initially for her Germany school tuition. And I was like, oh, my God, like that imploded. And, you know, he left a letter for her. It was very much like a it's incomplete, you know, yeah, an incomplete relationship. And I was devastated. I was so devastated. Um, Isangi's character ends up finally becoming a rebel and he starts helping his sister after he was taken and he was tortured and was in this room like God knows what happened to these people that were um, arrested. And so he has this like come to Jesus moment in the final episode because he his naivety is like torn to pieces in this moment. Right. Where he finally realizes like what she's been fighting for. Or against. Yeah. Um. And I guess the final thing is that, you know, the little brother, Myung-soo, what does he do? He, like, goes off to back to Naju to try and find the grandmother and the mom, his mom, and tell them what happened to the dad so that they could have, like, the final send-off of the father. Yeah. And he initiates this terrible, no-good, awful ending for our couple, which is... Myungi dies like she straight up gets murdered in the woods. She blocked a bullet that was meant for her brother and he gets away. And that that's it. Like she dies and it's so undignified and rude. And just the way that they like left her in a ditch, they didn't even bury her. They just like left her. They were initially like remove all forms of identification off of her so that no one can identify the body later. And thankfully that one friend who we had been following in and out of the, his military service took pity and left the, like left the identification. Basically he left the watch that the kid dropped, the brother dropped and he left the wedding prayer mm. on her. And that's how they could identify her later. I I got to tell you, like when they cut to the present, because they flash forwarded at the beginning of episode 12. And that's how you figure, you know, who lives. Mm. And Myungi's not among like the present day people. And I was like, oh, my God. I like you see Hite working as a professor in the hospital. And when he finally... They finally tell him that they found her body, Myungi's body. I mean, I lost it. I was sobbing over Hite reading her wedding prayer in 2021, 41 years later. Yeah. Like, I... Like, talk to me. Like, what did you think about this, like, ending and all of this reveal and stuff? So... Um, he'll probably be deeply disappointed in me <laughs> because oh I knew that the ending was going to end up, you know, with her yeah. dead. Um, I wanted to get that over with as quickly as possible. So I think I was around the episode three-ish mark when no, I just... Didn't. Yeah, I did. <laughs> no, didn't. I have always done this in fiction whenever I knew that there was going to be a tragic ending. <laughs> you read the last page of the book? I read the last page of the book. I honestly think I could get through the entire thing because I read it because my anxiety is no joke. Um, <laughs> I was telling you about my dog's anxiety <laughs> before, but my anxiety 
Trump says. And I can't, like I keep, um, I, I kept stalling. Like you, you told me about this more than a month back, right? And I was stalling till like two weeks back. <laughs> I had watched the first two episodes and I was like, I can't, I can't. This is, they're so cute. I can't, I can't watch this. So I just like went ahead and watched. But it didn't diminish the impact for me. I, mm. when I finally got to that episode again, I of course watched the whole way through. And the, so you have these quotes from the director uh, here. Yeah. And at one point he talks about how she had to die because that was basically the frame. It was that the story is memorable because she died and mm. he's not wrong. I don't think he's wrong if either. After all of that, if both of them had completely wholly emerged from that and if somebody else had died in the background um not, would not have had the same yeah impact the reason this is like so golden in the audience's memory as well as in Hite's memory mm-hmm. is because it's kind of like um contained in that one a single month pretty much mm-hmm. mostly in me and you know part of me when I was watching the final episode I thought hey this is you know, they, they cast a great actor. Um, I They cast uh, Che Won Young, which, by the way, it's the actors who get to play the older <laughs> versions of Edo Kyung. It's just, it's such good choices. I mean, they always cast, yeah. at least until now, they've cast like actors who can really smile, like smile mm-hmm. with their whole being. And Che Won Young can. Um, so good. I thought he was, this was a story about a man who's had this tragic thing happen to him, but he has emerged from it, like he has healed. But the drama is not, the drama's no. like, no sirree. <laughs> For 41 years, this man has been suffering. And we He's will been... tell you in detail how. <laughs> yeah, yeah. They made a point of kind of saying how he's been stuck in 1980 for 41 years. Oh, and um, her wedding prayer was something like, I hope that we can, even if we are out and swimming and, and swimming in the waves of life and stuff, I hope that we don't drown if we don't end up, you know, holding each other's hands forever, which was his prayer was that we never let go of each other. And I mean, honestly, he says that he's tried, he's tried to kill himself. He's been suicidal yeah. in the past 41 years and how he just wants to end his suffering and that he has been drowning. Yeah. You know, like she didn't want him to for all this time. And he's decided to just keep living, you know, in, in homage to her, you know, because she wanted him to. Yeah. And so it's very powerful. left behind yes and previously he made the point of saying if you die i will have nothing you are all i have i have no other family i have no other like friends you are it so i would rather die like if something were to happen i would rather be the one to suffer and she said you know don't say that i'll be your family and they get married and they have this whole like thing and even in the end episode where he's like this the road diverges there's two roads it splits i'll go down the more dangerous road 
and you go down this road where there's no soldiers uh, parked at the end of it or whatever. And she does. And she still, even though it was the easier road, she still died. Yeah. Like he, even in his, he tried so hard Yeah. and it still didn't, didn't work. You know, she still suffered and died and he, it was his worst nightmare because that was all he had. So it was very affecting, you know, for me to see him in the present day and to see him still using humor as a crutch, mm. as a, you know, defense mechanism. And he still has this like very light personality, but he's still suffering yeah, on the inside. And oh my God, I mean... It was well, it was very well done. And the director says, like, after Myungi died, the drama shows the stories of the remaining people. The drama is trying to say that numerous people are living while carrying their own burdens. And it's 100% the case. Like, he nailed it, right? If that's what he was going for, he nailed it. True. <laughs> um, and her death does make the drama more meaningful, Absolutely. And it's the like, I know we brought up Titanic. I brought up Titanic earlier, but it's the same thing with, with, uh, you know, Jack dying at the end of Titanic. Like that makes the story even more meaningful. Like had he lived, you probably wouldn't feel as strongly about the, you know, this story. So it is tragic. And I do feel like it was always supposed to happen. I think some people get upset when they don't get happy endings, especially in K-dramas. And, I can understand it when it's not warranted and the story doesn't really call for it. And it kind of comes out of left field and it just feels like they're trying to like pull a fast one on you. Right. It feels like they're, they're not taking the audience into consideration, but I feel like the director was like, not only am I taking the audience into consideration, I'm taking the weight of history into consideration. And I'm these characters that we've crafted here deserve a, a little bit more, meaning after the fact and of course they deserve better of course they deserve to have a happy ending but that's what makes this so heartbreaking right is that they couldn't escape history they couldn't escape this fate and i don't know it just does something to me and i do feel like a lot of stories that have unhappy endings in k-drama they're warranted right like i personally feel like the 25 21 ending was warranted right they didn't end up together I love the ending. Yeah. And yeah. honestly, that was not the main romance of 2020. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Well, so <laughs> it is always Go Yurim and yes. Kim Terry's character. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Precisely. Uh huh. Naido. Uh, so I feel the same way about this ending where it was like absolutely a given, you know? Yeah. So I think that's <laughs> the biggest thing. Like, that's the biggest thing about the show is that she dies they don't end up together it's so sad um it's really but yeah. sad but one of the things that makes it the most poignant and not something that makes you feel like you know uh, the rug's being pulled from under mm. you and like you'll be cheated of a good ending um is because they built up their story as something that was you know or kind of like like that like i said they put a time limit on it pretty early it also felt the f- the speed of it, the quickness of the progression of their relationship also lent this urgency to the narrative. So that it felt like it was happening too quickly. It was burning too bright. Mm. And there was almost like 
you expected that fall to happen, especially given the vulnerability of, of that time. But it was also a joy to watch the relationship mm. develop. The thing that K-dramas do where they explore the saddest of topics, but they always infuse certain lived moments mm. with so much mm. joy. Yeah. That's the only thing that ever lets me watch stories like these. Like, right. I, I can't take full on sadness. I can't take sadness from the first moment to the very end. <laughs> I, I have never been able to watch any movie, any TV show from anywhere in the world. That is just that. And I take nothing from it. Like stories where it starts serious and it progressively just gets worse. <laughs> I, I, I don't get any sucker from it. I don't get any moral lessons from it. I get no satisfaction from it. I get right. no emotional education from it. So, mm. but stories told like this. Yeah. Mm -hmm. They leave in it. Yeah, I would agree. I would agree completely. Um, I don't know if you had anything else to add. I've come to the end of my notes we're good. Okay. I guess one stray observation is that the sets for the 19, the 1980s set that they had, this small town, even the freaking record store and the cafe that they go to, mm -hmm. it seems like it is identical to the one in Snowdrop. I think really? they just use the same set. Yeah, I really oh, do. Oh, wow. Okay. Yeah. That and is... both boys even construct like a matchstick tower at some point in the waiting for, you know, yeah. their girl to yeah, arrive. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. In the cafe. I've seen that video from Snowdrop. <laughs> yes. So I'm like, oh my god, it's identical. So anyway, um, that's pretty much it. We're we're gonna get out of here. Thank you so much for coming on the show and talking at length about Youth of May, Paroma. I hope that we can do this again. And where can we find you? Or or dramas over flowers? Where can we find? Absolutely. Uh, thank you for having me. <laughs> you can find Dramas Over Flowers on Twitter at Dramas Over Flow. Um, on Instagram, we are Dramas Over Flowers underscore. And you can find me, Parma, uh, mostly on Twitter because that's where I hang out the most, uh, at The Drama Notes. Nice. Thank you so much. Thank you again. And that's been our show. I'm Jessica, and this has been the Debaki Rambles podcast. <laughs> 바람이 흐느껴 울던 겨울은 한참 멀어진 것 같은데 길가에 흐드러진 봄의 향길 담은 꽃들마저도 나는 느낄 수가 없네 따뜻한 미소로 날 바라보지만 내 마음은 아직 겨울인가 봐 피어난 사랑 앞에 흔들리는 건 너를 바랄 수 없는 초라함 때문일까 너무 아름다워 아픈 사람아 슬픈 눈빛으로 웃던 사람아 내게 운명처럼 다가와 나를 사랑해준 사람아 이젠 꿈처럼 희미해지길